is Motley Fool Answers. I'm Allison Southwick, and I am joined, as always, by yes. Robert yes. Brokamp, oh, personal hello, finance expert here at The Motley Fool. It's true. It is true. It's the <laughs> She's stating the fact. It's the mailbag episode, and we're joined by Sean Gates. Hey, Sean. Hey, nice to see you. Today, we're going to tackle your question about drips in your IRA, catch-up contributions, and is Ray Dalio right about capitalism? All that and more on this week's episode of Motley Fool Answers. It's the mailbag episode. We don't know if you like it or not, but we do it every month. Okay. Woo! I don't know, trying to liven it up. You were saying, bro, that at the beginning of the show, before we started taping here, that you weren't sure if our listeners love the mailbag or not. Yes, I'm never, I'm never sure, but partially because I do, I do feel like we address uh, common questions commonly. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Sometimes we get off in the same questions. Mm-hmm. Uh, but that said, people say some awfully nice things in the emails they send us, and it makes me feel pretty good. Yeah. So, all right. Yeah. Well, you can send us your feedback on if you like the mailbag episodes or not. Don't know that'll change anything, but <laughs> let's get into it, shall we, Sean? Let's do it. Should, but for, should we remind everyone who Sean is, by the way? Oh, Sean. I mean, I feel like everyone should know who you are. Sean is a financial advisor with Motley Fool Wealth Management. A sister company of the Motley Fool. After dark. (laughs) He is. (laughs) Uh, And he is kind enough to uh, come on the show and help answer your questions. So, thanks, man. Yeah, happy to be here. All right. Now, can we get into it, Yes, we can go now. As if they don't know who Sean is. He's only been on the show like a million times. A million. Last time was February, though, so it's been a while. Oh, wait, like a whole year? Almost a year. Wow. He talked about how much he loves marriage. That can't be that can't be <laughs> right. Really? It's been a while. They have so. me trapped in the in the basement. Yes. Locked up pretty hard. Yeah. It All smells right. like it. Let's just get into it, shall we? The first question comes from Steven. In one of your mailbag podcasts, you mentioned contributing after tax dollars to a 401k to allow tax free accrual in excess of the traditional Roth $19,500 limit. The 401k through my employer allows this type of contribution and also allows immediate conversion of after tax contributions to Roth. Is my understanding correct that I will not need to pay taxes on these Roth funds or gains in retirement and that I can roll them into a Roth IRA in the future if I leave my current employer? This seems too good to be true. Is there a catch that I'm missing? Finally, are there additional reporting requirements at tax return time? I'm currently maxing the traditional 401k, contributing to a Roth IRA, and then saving in a taxable brokerage account. I'm considering directing some money into the after-tax 401k instead of the taxable account. Yeah, this is a great question. And actually, another reader, Ian, who works at Google, uh, basically has the answer. So, Ian said, the standard 401k elective deferral limit is uh, for 2020 is $19,500. The overall additions to defined contribution plans is $57,000. So, you might be like, well, where's the difference? So, the difference is you add all these pieces together. So, it's $19,500 for your contributions, the employer match, which is additive on top of it, and then there's just this delta between $57,000 and whatever those two previous numbers were. And those you can add to after-tax contributions. You've already paid taxes on it. It's a payroll deduction that goes into the 401k if your 401k allows it. And so it sounds like it does. Google is a very um, wealthy sort of uh, employee base. And so they also offer it. And they do have a fairly good plan that allows for it. I have a couple of Google clients that I work with to help facilitate this. Ian's from Google, by the way. Ian's from Google. Sorry if that wasn't clear. Someone else who wrote in and talked about his plan. Ian, the reader. Which I think it's kind of ironic that you still somehow got the answer from Google. (laughs) 
<laughs> well, you yes. didn't have to Google it, but someone from Google sent you the answer. Well Not that you didn't already. It's know a whole it, new but thank program you, Ian. that they have. They they email you the answers to the questions that they know you're eventually yeah. going thank to ask. Thank you, Ian. Man, Ian, have you been spying on our yep. email? Like, how did you know? Google knows everything. Wow, amazing. Um, so. Yeah, and so the the key is that once you've contributed the after-tax dollars into the 401k, you have to somehow get it out of the 401k. So your your employer plan has to allow for the after-tax contribution type. Many don't. They have to allow you to then move that money to out of the account potentially. So they will could let you roll it into a Roth IRA within the the plan, so basically a Roth 401k, or they will allow you to do in-service distributions of those dollars, the after-tax dollars specifically, out of the plan entirely to a Roth IRA in your name. But there's a timing issue here, because after the funds are in there, if they're invested, which they typically default to, there's growth on it. And so if you don't do it immediately, when you make the rollover uh, process occur, uh, you might have to pay taxes on the small amount of growth. So I do this personally, and I'm not great at it. The process within the, the Motley Fool 401k is not as streamlined as it sounds like some others. And so I have to fill out paperwork. I have to submit it to HR. Uh, it takes a while to process, and I ultimately end up paying small amount of tax on the growth inside of the account. But it is a great way to supercharge a Roth IRA if you make too much or uh, you don't save enough in other areas. And Ian was basically writing in because he was wondering if this is a rare feature to get this. Is it pretty rare? or it's It's becoming more common, and I think it depends on the employer's employee base, because a lot of employers don't want to make some employees feel bad, basically, that because it requires a substantial amount of money. Fifty-seven thousand dollars worth of annual contributions is a ton of money. Like that's some people's whole salary, and so I think if you have a well-to-do employee base, the employer is more likely to offer it. You can always advocate to your employer to open it up. Um, that is not, uh, you know, impossible to do. Uh, but yeah, no, I think it's becoming more and more common. All right, our next question comes from Jerry. The Friendly Mailbag cast recommended that listeners put their money in the S&P 500 to benefit from diversification. Should this advice not be immediately qualified by the weighted average disclaimer? The top 10 largest companies represent 21.5% of the total. Information technology represents 22.8% of the total. The top 50 companies out of 500 represent 50% of the total index value. Globally, 100% of the index invests in U.S. stocks. Did your advisors also not say that the next decade could see better returns by partially investing abroad? This is a good question. I certainly wouldn't recommend that anyone just invest in the S&P 500. Um, in fact, we may have mentioned this on the show previously, but maybe a year or two ago, Vanguard actually replaced the Vanguard 500 in their 401k with a total stock market index fund because the S&P 500 is large cap stocks. It is more concentrated. If you do the total stock market, it's still heavily weighted towards large caps, but you get a little bit of med cap and small cap exposure. We at The Motley Fool did the same thing. We replaced our S&P 500 index fund with a total stock market index fund. I don't remember which mailbag episode in which we said gave that advice, but I'm, I'm suspecting we, we said that in the context of someone who maybe had a handful of individual stocks. and We suggested that maybe adding an index fund to that portfolio is a good way to diversify that. But I think he makes some very good points. It is certainly not equally weighted across all 500 companies. Um, it is heavily weighted towards, these days, Microsoft, Apple, Amazon, Facebook, Google, those companies. Um, 
I was I was trying to think if I could only choose one fund, would I choose the total stock market fund or would I use the total international stock fund? Which in that case, you only have about a fifty percent U.S. exposure. I'm not sure which one I do, but I would guess I'm going to guess that over the next decade, one with more international exposure will do better. But that's just a total guess. Yeah, I mean, in my experience talking with clients, it's kind of funny because international stock, actually, really anything other than the S and P 500 has not performed as well as historically has, and the S and P 500 has become sort of the de facto benchmark that everyone compares themselves to. And so, in that way, if you did the total market index and you compared yourself to the S and P 500 over the last several years, at least. You'd be doing worse from a total return perspective, and so it's just interesting behavior in terms of how. I don't think I would also invest only in the S and P 500, but just depends on what your benchmark is to some extent. All right, next question comes from Gail. My husband and I have a chunk of change sitting in a savings account. We also have a house that we will finish paying off in two years, as well as a rental that is about 14 years from being paid off. We figured out that once the houses are paid off, we can essentially be semi-retired, working just 15 hours a week each. I'm in my early 30s, and my husband is 40, and we do have a child. The thing is, we don't want to lock up this cash in retirement funds that we would have to wait 20 to 30 years to access. We could pay off a big amount of our rental mortgage and get us that much closer to retiring early. However, the money would earn more in a higher rate savings account, index funds, stocks, REIT funds, etc. We do max out our Roths every year. We just got access to a 401k at work, and I invest most of my side hustle money in stocks that I study to hold. Would it be better to pay off a large portion of a rental mortgage to get us closer to FIRE, financial independence, retire early, or better to work longer and have it earning interest in an account that we could access before retirement age? What is your favorite investing account that you could access before 59 and a half? So I'm going to not answer your question. Uh, Great. This <laughs> is why we on. Yeah, number four. <laughs> Thanks, Gail. <laughs> Let's can we go? Can we go to Ian? Ian, are you? <laughs> Ian, what do you got? Google. Would you please email us the answer? <laughs> um, but so, I, really, the answer is any type of account that you want to save for for retirement is a good one, and it. They don't, even though there's a an exclusion insofar as you can't necessarily get access without a penalty before age 59 and a half. There are ways around it, and so that's a key thing to know about is that there is a process called substantially equal periodic payments, or the rule of 72T, where you can basically morph a bucket of money in a retirement plan to distribute to you before age 59 and a half in equal payments of a certain amount. Um, before you reach that age, and it allows you access to those funds. And if you structure it correctly, you could sort of bifurcate these buckets. You could have several buckets of substantially equal periodic payment uh, designation, and and get exactly the amount of income that you would need. And so, don't anchor too hard to the type of account. Just anchor to the strategy and the amount of money that you need to support your retirement. Yeah, and the the benefit there are a couple of things, right? So with the Roth IRA, you can always take out the contributions, tax and penalty free any time the earnings you have to leave alone. With substantially equal periodic payments, if you file that, depending on the account, you still might owe taxes, but you get around that ten percent early distribution penalty. So there are lots of ways around it. In terms of the question of whether you should pay off debt or invest that money, part of it to me is risk tolerance. Paying down debt is a guaranteed safe return. Investing that money instead really just will depend on whatever your investments earn over the next five to ten years. So, if the stock market tanks, you'll be like, dang, I wish I'd paid off that debt. If 
the stock market keeps going gangbusters, earning 10 12% a year, that will be, have been the better move to make. So, partially, it depends on how flexible you are with your goal. I've talked before on how I love the idea of retiring uh, mortgage-free, but I don't plan to retire until I'm well into my 60s, so I've got time to do it. If I were trying to do financial independence, retire early, I think I'd feel better retiring in that situation debt-free, too, but that's just my own preference. Yeah, and actually, one thing that I've done, because I find myself in a similar position with a rental and wanting to fire, is you can still make a large chunk contribution to your mortgage, but then you can recast the mortgage and substantially lower your monthly payment, and then that allows you to take the delta of what you were paying and what you're now paying and dollar cost average into the market. So you're kind of getting a benefit in two ways a little bit. Um, this kind of sounds like it wouldn't hurt for them to maybe have a financial person hold their hand and talk to them through their options. Maybe? Yeah, I mean, I, my, my. I mean, you being a financial yes. advisor, I know you're biased, yes. but I mean, the T37 rule, it sounds, or whatever you call it, <laughs> it sounded like a, 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 plane, a plane from Star Wars, like a mod, like. Oh, the T seventy is. Um, I don't know. It's just I haven't heard you guys talk about this a lot before. So, yeah, yeah, and and, and like Bro said, you you do still owe taxes on it. So whether or not it's you, you have to structure your income in a way to tend to your tax bracket over many years. So yes, I would agree that long term planning in this way, it's great to talk to someone who can custom tailor the solutions to you. But yeah, I'm biased. Yeah, yeah. you don't have to go to Sean. You can go to someone else. Yeah, or Google. See what he ends up to. I don't know. All right, our next question comes from Jamal. I read that it's a good idea to keep drips, dividend reinvestment plans in an IRA. Do you agree? And if so, how do I transfer my stocks to my IRA account without stopping anything? Yeah, generally speaking, right, with when you have a stock that's paying a dividend, you have to pay taxes on that dividend each and every year if it's in a taxable brokerage account. Even if you're reinvesting the dividend, you still owe taxes on it. So while you're saving for retirement, it's probably better to keep dividend-paying stocks, especially higher yielder ones, in an IRA. That said, you cannot you can only put cash in an IRA. You cannot transfer stocks into an IRA. So if you were going to do this, you would have to sell these stocks, put the cash in the IRA, and then buy it. It could be a bit of a tax hassle. Well, it depends though on how young you are. It might be better to bite the tax bullet today get that money in the IRA. So, I, that might also be a question for maybe a tax person or something like to look into. Um, interestingly, you can take stocks out of an IRA. So, when you're retired and you're taking money, you don't have to take cash. You can have the stocks taken out. I don't know why they allow that, but only cash go in. But that's the way it is. Next question comes from Andrew. I saw a tweet from Michael Policar that said, 1. Max the match. 2. Max the HSA. 3. Max the Roth. 4. Max the 401k. I had never thought before about maxing out my HSA before contributing to a Roth IRA or going above my employer match. In fact, I didn't start contributing to my HSA at all until last year when I had some medical needs, since I'm 33 and haven't had any serious health issues. But it got me thinking, should people max out their HSA before contributing to their IRA or even going above their 401k match? It's a good question. Uh, and. You know, I'm not going to be so bold as to give a rank order of which strategy is correct all across all cases, but the HSA is a very powerful account, especially given the the likely fact that everyone has medical expenses that they will need to account for over many years. Um, and so, given the fact that you get an upfront deduction on your taxes for your contributions, given the fact that it grows tax-free, and given the fact that you can remove the funds tax-free if used to purchase medical expenses, um, that triple tax benefit is hard to beat. 
And so it's a very powerful account. I would rank it right up there. I don't know that I would rank it above getting a match because that's also free money that compounds quickly. Um, and the dollar limits inside the HSA are relatively small. Um, and so it's, it's hard to get that account to get real juiced up quickly. Um, but I, w- I would rank it quite high. Yeah, I, I, would, I would agree with that. Um, so I, I've never had an HSA. HSA stands for Health Savings Account, by the way, and you have to be part of a high-deductible health plan to do that. Yep. Um, but otherwise, the, uh, the order is what I did for many years. I maxed, reached the match with the fool, then went to a Roth IRA, and then, if I had money left over, did the rest in the 401k, and I think that makes a lot of sense. Yeah. But we don't even have an HSA option, so we don't even worry about that. We do. We oh, do. we do have an yeah, HSA. We do. Oh. Yeah, we do. As of maybe you two or three years ago. Oh, really? Yeah. So I used. Yeah. So you have to have. You have to opt in to the high deductible health insurance uh, plan. It's then, okay. it's scarier though. So that it's 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 what you could deem a riskier type of health insurance. It yeah. doesn't cover everything fully like the other more robust plan. Um, but with that risk comes potentially higher reward. Um, in fact, I when I make the contributions to my HSA, even if I have medical expenses, I don't use the funds in the HSA because I want them to sit there and compound. So I'll just pay out of pocket for the medical expenses and let the HSA funds compound. Hmm. All right, next question comes from Cameron. Are there any tax-advantaged retirement plans for people on disability? I have a friend who is 30 and collects from a long-term disability policy, not Social Security. Uh, so, to contribute to an IRA, you have to have earned income. So, the first question is, do the payments from this long-term disability policy count as earned income? And the answer is, it depends. And you, your friend will know if she or he reserves, received a Form W-2 at the end of the year, and Box 1 has an amount in there. That is counted as earned income, and then that means you have that much earned income that you can contribute to the IRA. Social Security disability benefits do not count as earned income. I know that doesn't apply to Cameron, but for other people who have that question, um, that would, you cannot use that money as earned income to contribute to an IRA. There is something called the ABLE account, which stands for Achieving a Better Life Experience. It was from a law that was passed in 2014. It's actually a special type of 529 in which anybody, the beneficiary or someone else, can contribute up to $15,000 a year. No tax benefit on putting the money in, but it grows tax-free if the money is used for qualified disability expenses. So, you know, living arrangements, equipment, things like that. Also, that money does not count against... Many people on disability are receiving special payments based on their net worth. Basically, they have no money, so they get special supplemental disability payments. The money in an ABLE, up to $100,000, does not count against that which is also an attractive thing, because a lot of people, I think, often on disability, receiving these payments, think, I don't want any assets in my name, because I'm going to lose my benefits. But up to $100,000 in Enable does not count against that. So, if you are in that situation, definitely learn more about Enable account. All right, next question comes from Joe. I recently read Ray Dalio's article, Why and How Capitalism Needs to be Reformed, Parts 1 and 2. To simplify the article for the sake of my question, Dalio says that capitalism has been great for our country in the last hundred or so years. However, in the present day, it will prove to also be our downfall if we don't make significant changes. My question, given this perspective from such a reliable source, should I move my investments away from indices that track the U.S. economy, namely the S&P 500? I'm not familiar with this 
piece written by Ray Dalio. So you guys may need to summarize it a bit right. more for me. What uh, needs well, to first of all, should we just we should make clear everyone who knows is who Ray Dalio, right? <laughs> yeah. So founded Bridgewater Associates, the biggest hedge fund manager in the world. And Ray Dalio himself is worth $20 billion, which last time I looked, it puts him as like number 25 in the world in terms of wealthiest people. He knows people. a thing about money. He knows a thing. And, it's, and he's a great, st- like American story. He started out as a caddy, and then he started Bridgewater basically in his apartment somewhere, and now he's a billionaire. I'm surprised. I thought this question would get edited out, so I didn't know you'd allow me to wax philosophical a little Please bit. Please do. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, but so the article's take, which I think there's a number of good points, I would suggest everyone reading it. Um, but I think. I would pose a question to Joe, which is, what if I said yes? So just his question is, should I move away from the S&P 500 because of what Ray Dalio says? And if I said yes, do you? I don't know that that's a great investment strategy, um, but I, I get this sense all the time when I'm talking to customers. They're like, hey, I read this piece of information that just happened across my newsfeed. How are you developing strategies to account for it? And by and large, that's a very dangerous way to guide your investing philosophy. I mean, capitalism has gotten the U.S. where it is. It's very likely to get us out of whatever predicaments that we find ourselves in. It is the core engine of why earnings growth occurs. And so I don't think you should move away from the S&P 500. And I think you should really question how you're thinking about your investing strategy fundamentally, who, who you're taking guidance from to get there. So I did not. Re- I read this particular piece as well as several other pieces. Interestingly, he blogs on LinkedIn. Like I don't know how many people do that, yeah. but they do, and they're very long. I did not read this recently, so I'm probably going to mix up a lot of what he's saying. Um, but a couple of points is that uh, populism is on the rise, not only in the U.S. but in the world. And if you look historically, that is often leads to a lot of conflict. Often the conflict then leads to some sort of at least temporary economic issues, if not ec- economic ruin, for a while. Um, he also points out that we have growing liabilities, both in terms of debt as well as unfunded entitlements. And at some point, that has to be paid. And that is going to lead to even more conflict between the capitalist haves and the socialist have nots. So he really folds in a lot of history that is even beyond economics to what he's saying. Um, earlier, I said, by the way, that I think over the next decade, um, a total market, a total global market fund would do better than just a U.S. market. One other thing that he believes that he's noticed, and he, all, all his beliefs are based on history. He's a big history guy, and he's noticed that things last about a decade, and then there's a paradigm shift, and it often happens at the transition around of a decade. So you think of the Roaring Twenties was followed by the Great Depression, the inflationary Seventies was followed by the disinflationary Eighties. In the 80s, this was all international stocks, particularly Japan. And then those all did horribly for the 90s while the US and the tech boom happened. So you have these switch changes. And he pointed out toward the end of last year what has done well over the past decade US stocks, yeah. particularly the SP 500. Yeah. So while I agree with Sean that I don't think you should dump the SP 500, there are not that many. Ex- uh, examples of where one type of stock, asset class, has done fabulously well one decade and kept it up for the next decade. Yep. Next question comes from J-Rod. I was able to add a Roth option to the 401k at work by making a case to our HR folks. Next, I want to revamp what is offered in it because it's a bunch of useless, actively managed mutual funds that lose to the benchmark. Well, way to go, J-Rod, and making change happen. Yeah. Yes. So, that's my first reason for including this. Totally. Like, great job. Yeah. And it's, we've talked about doing this before on the show, but it's so great to see an actual example of it, where you go to the people in your company who are also 
covered by the plan, so they have every incentive to improve it, Mm -hmm. and saying, hey, can we add this? Now, the interesting thing about what he's pointing out, I assume J-Rod is he, by the way, it could be a female, he or she is pointing out, like no company has to offer a Roth, but they did it anyhow. But a company has a fiduciary responsibility to offer good investments. Hmm. Like you don't have a choice in that, especially if they are higher cost um, investments. A great example is employees of Fidelity suing Fidelity because the plan had too many high cost Fidelity funds. So I think one thing you could say to your employers: Look, listen, you have a legal responsibility. I've, here are some links to companies that got sued because they had investments that were not good and they were high cost. That might be enough incentive to get them to change the investments. Cool. All right. Next question comes from Scott. In the July mailbag episode, you broke down how to find a planner. We recently engaged in some initial conversations to get quotes, but the quotes were all over the place. We're looking for some basic planning services, including budgeting and cash flow analysis, some help determining if we're on track for retirement and, if we're, and if we're invested in proper vehicles, helping us to determine how much we should be setting aside in a 529 plan for our daughter, some simple tax and estate planning. At this time, we weren't interested in having anyone manage our money for us. We met with three fee-only planners and received quotes for 3200 5000 and 10000 We thought the 10000 quote was egregious. How should we go about assessing these quotes and making a decision? Yeah, this is another great question, and I, it's tough. I would say that the financial planning industry is still relatively young in the grand scheme of things, and many folks are still figuring out what a sustainable business model is. I will say your question is one that I get commonly from potential customers of Motley Fool Wealth Management, where they, they say, I'm looking for X, Y, and Z pieces of guidance, but I have a simple situation. I have never had someone come to me and say, my situation is so complex. So you're, you're sort of defaulting to assuming that your situation is easy and won't take a lot of time to work through, but that's unlikely to be true. Even the easiest of situations, if the planner is good at their job, could spend a decent amount of time helping guide you into really sophisticated solutions. So it's all based on how you price your services. I, I would say 10000 is on the higher end of what I've seen. I wouldn't say it's egregious. I've seen some people pay $100,000 for a fee-only plan, Whoa. depending on the level of wealth. How much money did they have? Yeah, so in this case, you could think a lot of financial planners are switching to 1% of net worth mm. um, as a fee model. Just And again, like I said, the, people are still figuring out. So one, the percentage of net worth is becoming a uh, newer fee structure, uh, 1% of salary is another one that I've seen. So people are still trying to figure out how to charge. Um, I would say another option as you're going through your due diligence process of interviewing folks is you can look for hourly rate financial advisors. And that might, you know, if you truly have a simple situation and it only takes someone five hours to go through it, maybe you're out 500 bucks because they charge $100 an hour. Um, But that at least gets you partway through the path to know if your situation is simple. Just to give you a frame of reference, Michael Kitsis, who's kind of like the financial planner's financial planner, uh, did a survey last year of financial advisors of a thousand and say, how much are you charging? When for the people who just do a straight planning, no assets under management, no estate planning, anything like that, the average fee was twenty four hundred dollars. Hmm. The high end being six thousand. So ten thousand on that scale does sound like a lot, but it does depend on what you're going to get. Right. If if a full estate plan is part of that, then it's not quite so high. I'm getting my estate planning docu- documents all updated, and it's going to cost us over $3,000. So, if you're looking at a full estate plan and a full financial plan, it could be several thousand dollars. Yeah, and I will say that Michael Kitsis also, as a financial planner of the financial planners, usually at conferences will say that planners are charging too little for their services. So, <laughs> that average number is likely to increase over time. 
again, it's, it's just one of those deals. It's a time-consuming business. I wish there was a way to expedite the, the analysis work. It's not. We haven't figured it out yet. It's tough. Like, how do you decide though? Like, if you like between the thirty two hundred, five thousand, and ten thousand, is just I like this person. But do you then then go with your gut and just say like, oh, it's worth it. You know, five thousand more to pay for this person because I liked them. I would just well, I would say first of all, be very clear what you're getting. Are you getting the same thing from each person? Mm-hmm. Um, and if you're getting the same thing from each person, I, I personally would then look to see how I found those people and if I can get any other references their experience, anything else that indicates one person is going to be much better than the other. If, if you can't find that evidence, me being an eternal cheapskate, would probably go with the cheapest person. Yeah. I mean, there, there's so many metrics. I know you've covered several on previous mailbag episodes, but I would say if you can get the planner to give you a preview of the recommendations, uh, that's one way to go. Like, you, you know, th- they might be able to come up with six specific strategies that could benefit you. And if they just were like, this one strategy may compound to X amount of dollars, can help a little bit. And you can get that from everyone. Yeah. Final thing on that is to find out how much they're going to help with the implementation. Are you just going to get a big report in a binder and you're on your own? Are they going to say, okay, send us all these forms, all these things, and we are going to walk you step by step to getting it done? Because that can be worth paying for, I think. Hmm. All right. Next question comes from Bob and Jill. We are in our early 50s and have one child in college and another entering soon. We have $1 million saved for retirement and own our home with seven and a half years left before it is paid off. Last month, we decided to put half of each children's 529 savings into cash to preserve those funds. As we did that, we thought, well, maybe it's time to do something similar with our retirement savings. We'd expect that beating the market is maybe not so important, and we'd take cutting in half the gains on the market if we knew some of our other assets could be put in more conservative vehicles and hold steady in case the market turns downward. We looked into fixed indexed annuities with our advisor five years ago, but decided that would be better for them than for us. Absolutely agree. Over the past (laughs) two years, we've already allocated more 401k and IRA investments to dividend and value mutual funds and away from growth. But perhaps it is time to play it safer since we are 15 to 20 years from retirement age. So, can we afford to settle for underperforming the S&P 500 at this stage in life, or should we still keep some funds in the growth category? So the first, first of all, uh, I love the idea that you moved the 529 savings to safer. I, I, I'm in a very similar situation, and almost all of our 529 savings are in cash or bonds. Because one kid in college, one going to college next year, I want it all completely safe. So you said you put half of it. I might, I might even be inclined to say put all of it in there, but that's because I like to play it safer with something that I know I have to pay for. Uh, the other question is essentially how much should you have in the stock market when you're in your 50s, early 50s, and you expect to retire in 15, 20 years. So, in our model portfolios that we have in my early retirement service, if you're more than a decade from retirement, it's basically like six to ten percent out of the market. Once you're within a decade of retirement, about 25 percent out of the stock market. Just as a general guideline. Also, if you look at target retirement funds, uh, which I think are always a good benchmark, they're a little more conservative than maybe the typical Motley Fool, but I think they're a good moderate risk alternative. For the typical 2035 funds, someone who's going to retire in 15 years, they have an allocation of 45% US stocks, 25% international, so a total of 70% stocks, 30% out. So I think those are perfectly fine allocations. You always have to factor in your risk tolerance, which basically in your situation means if and when the market drops 50%, and it will at some point, we just don't know when. Will you freak out? 
will that cause you to sell your stocks because you're panicking? Because you're like, oh my gosh, I just lost half my retirement savings and I have to sell more because I'm afraid it's all going to go poof? Or are you the type of person that when the market drops 50%, you're like, that's okay. Actually, can I find some cash and get more in there? If you're pretty risk tolerant, then go ahead and, and stick with a, a predominantly stock heavy portfolio, especially if you don't need that money for 15 to 20 years. Plus, your house is going to be paid off in about seven years, and that's a bill that's going to go away. Uh, and finally, I'll just say you can, you can do this gradually. You can, for example, stop reinvesting the dividends from your stocks, let them accumulate in cash, the capital gains distributions from your funds, and maybe just the money that you're adding to your retirement accounts, you could do half cash, half stocks, if that makes you feel better. Next question comes from Scott. I'm a California school teacher with a modest pension. I've been searching for a retirement calculator that considers a partial pension, but coming up short. What is the best way to calculate the availability of a partial pension when planning for retirement? Yeah, it's a great question. I'm surprised at how many people I work with that still have pension. People think it's like a prehistoric animal, but yeah. it's it's actually still pretty prevalent. So good for you. Um, it's a huge benefit, and the reason why it's a huge benefit is because in planning, there's this great boogeyman or woman that is called sequencing risk, and so that is the risk that when you retire and start the process of distributing from your accounts. Uh, you get the market correction. And so now you have stocks that are at depressed prices, you're forced to sell, further reducing the value of the account, and it compounds almost in reverse. And so with a pension, you have a steady income which reduces the amount of money that you have to support yourself on from your investment assets. And so, you, as Bro alluded to on a previous question, you have the flexibility to decide whether you want to be more aggressive because you have a fixed reserve of income coming in, or maybe you, you, know, you use that to decide that you want to be more conservative because you have the money taken care of. Uh, so it's, it's based on your risk tolerance and specifically how much money you need to utilize from your portfolio over the next three, four, five years. Um, but I think you should definitely include that. Maybe I think Bro has mentioned this several times, but you could also use it to back into it being a, par- a portion of your bond portfolio and then remove that from the equation. A um, number of different strategies, but I think it's only net benefit to you. As for asking about a specific retirement calculator, um, I don't have that yet, although I'm, I'm now currently working on a project where I'm looking at available retirement calculators, so stay tuned. Nice. I'm sure we'll talk about it eventually. All right, next question comes from Eric. For IRA catch-up, you have to be 50 by when? End of year? So, what uh, Eric's talking about is when you are 50, you can add more to your IRA, an extra 1000 or if you have a 401k, you can add an extra 6500 you only have to be 50 by the end of the year, by December 31st. So you don't have to wait until you're 50. You can start contributing as soon as the year starts. That's what I did last year when I turned 50. I didn't turn 50 till July, but man, by that first paycheck, I was getting in my extra catch-up contribution. Now, relatedly, you might ask, well, there's another rule. We talked about it previously. If you want your money out of the IRA or 401k, uh, if you take it out before 59 and a half, you owe 10%. So when does that get? When does that happen? Like, does it just the year you turn 59 and a half? And no, that actually, you have to wait until you are 59 and a half. If you take it out when you're 59 and a quarter, you're going to owe that 10% penalty. There's some, we talked about before, there's some ways around that. But that's the general rule. And our last question comes from Timothy. The company I work for pays out 401k matching and profit sharing in company stock via an ESOP fund. I know it isn't great to have too much stock in the company you work for. Additionally, while I like the company, I'm fairly confident its stock will trail the market over the next few years. 
When I went to transfer some of the ESOP funds to other funds offered in the plan, I received this message. Oh, this is this is fun for me to read. This is a quote, a direct quote. And this is edited. This is only half of it. So, be grateful. You're welcome. Okay. Quote: (laughs) Reallocating your current balance to new investment elections will result in a transfer, and you will lose your current cost basis allocated to your account to the extent of the transfer. Under the terms of the 401k plan, you may receive a distribution of shares of stock allocated to your investment in the ESOP fund. Such an in-kind distribution may qualify for deferral of tax on the amount by which the value of those shares at the time of the distribution exceeds their original cost basis, their net unrealized appreciation. End quote. What does this? Thank you. And then Timothy asks, "What does this mean?" <laughs> Who knows? No. Uh, so again, <laughs> that's the show. Uh, so I'm. This was a really cool question. I still see this. I'm sure I, you really? all. I'm sure you all agree. <laughs> uh, and for our next episode, we're just going to read like our <laughs> iTunes terms and conditions. Yeah, I actually helped a, a couple of customers use this uh, strategy, net unrealized appreciation, over the last uh, couple months, and. It's it's often hidden, and so actually, what's cool about this is that you were notified ahead of time that you would lose this benefit. Not all plans do that, and so a lot of people will unwittingly remove this option from their plan by transferring their stock fund, their company stock fund, to other investments. It's just a very common thing people transfer. Um, so, what is it talking about? So, net unrealized appreciation basically means as you accumulate company stock within your four hundred one k. It tracks your basis, which is unusual in a retirement account because basis typically doesn't matter because when it comes out, you're paying tax on all of it. Um, But with the case of company stock specifically, it allows you to pull out when you retire the basis of the stock. And actually, it doesn't even have to be when you retire necessarily, Um, but it allows you to pull out the cost basis of the shares of the stock, pay tax on that value, and then defer the gains until you decide to sell them at a future date. Um, And so, as an example, say you have $250,000 worth of Lockheed Martin stock. You work for Lockheed Martin. But over time, your basis in the $250,000 is $10,000. The net unrealized appreciation is the $240,000 gain of that Lockheed Martin stock. So when you take it out, you pay tax on $10,000, and you defer the gain on the $240,000. It's a great way to get a large value in pre-tax assets out of the account without having to pay a substantial amount of tax on it. It's also a great way to reduce the value of pre-tax assets that you otherwise have to pay income tax on down the line. Meaning, if you have a million-dollar IRA and $250,000 of it is this Lockheed Martin stock, technically, by the time you reach now age 72, you have to distribute a certain amount of that in required minimum distributions, and it's based on the total value of the account. But this person, through this benefit, can remove $250,000 of that value, further reducing the amount of RMDs that they would have to take. So, very detailed, very complicated, but it's an awesome benefit. Yeah, I would definitely. this is definitely a situation where you might want to consult a tax expert. And for the really big companies, like Lockheed Martin, there are people who specialize in helping people yeah. with their stock because each stock, this ESOPs, any release, any stock plan, um, they often have their own quirks. Yep. Um, and you'll you'll again, if it's a really big company, you'll find someone who specializes in helping people with the Google plan, Lockheed Martin, whoever. You'll find somebody. 
Although I will say that in my experience, these people don't always exist. I think you're right that there will be people that you can try and find, but the plan administrator themselves often doesn't know horseshoes from hand grenade. Like they, they are often confused by this, and I will be on the phone with the client and the plan administrator saying, no, 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 this is how you have to issue the check in this way. Um, and so, yeah, it's just... It's a super complicated strategy, very beneficial, um, so always pay attention. And the other thing that you note here is that the, the company stock can take the form of many different things. So it could be a stock fund, which is like a private fund that just tracks the value of the stock. It could be actual shares of the yeah. stock. So just a number of things to pay attention to. Yeah. All right. Well, that's it for the questions. It's time to head to my part of the mailbag. Well, bro, let's head to my part of the mailbag where people say nice things or just don't have questions to ask. My favorite part of the mailbag. Is it? Because you don't have to do anything. I do well, all the talking. And I, do, I love the postcards. I love the postcards. Oh, yeah. We'll get to the postcards eventually. But first, we have um, we got a message from Benjamin. Um, he signed it arbitrarily. Um, he was kind of bummed when we talked about um, the episode where uh, people bought things and they thought they were going to be worth, you know, buy the quiz with Diana. He was sad that the. Um, Pictures taken by Earl weren't worth as much as the Ansel Adams pictures. And so I'm bummed too. You can go check out Earl's pictures. They were just as nice as Ansel Adams pictures. Um, and also, he was one of the people screaming, I know Silver Dollar City. <laughs> Jeff Haslow also came up to me today at work and he's like, I know Silver Dollar City. I'm like, what? Anyway, okay. I uh, also got a nice message from Calvin in Iowa. He says, I've been watching Nightly Business Report on PBS since I was seven years old in the 80s. My master plan eventually became, in part, to crowdsource experts from this show on their suggested stocks from this show as a starting point to research, and then I would buy and hold both at the right time. I started down the path in mid. Uh, 2018, I guess. Worth promising results. Then they canceled the show. Frowny face. So the lesson I take away is not to wait, take 30 years to enact a plan. That's true. That's 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 very true. Yeah. All right, let's head to the postcards. Kind of jealous of Sean, who sent a card Bora Boringly from uh, French Polynesia. There you go. Oh, man, that's pretty. Isn't that gorgeous? Also making me jealous is Steve, who sent a couple cards from the big island of Hawaii. Yay! So nice. Uh, Alan and Roxanne sent a card from the Yokozuna Sushi Bar in Tulsa, Oklahoma. And I'll bet Alan and Roxanne also know Silver Dollar City. Because Bartlesville is just north of Tulsa. Uh, if you haven't yet, you can head over to Twitter um, or the Motley Fool Podcast Facebook group to see the new and improved postcard wall, um, how it's shaping up. In a word, it's breathtaking. And so these are heading straight to the, the new wall. Uh, Don over on Twitter says, I can't believe that one of your experts didn't really put that in quotes, Don. I saw that shade. Can't believe that one of our experts didn't recommend Quicken as a great tool for tracking budgets and investment performance, as he's been using it for years. And I also uh, want to thank everyone who gave us the holiday gift of a review on iTunes, like Freaky Frogster, King Hoser, Dave Fan, Finn Howie, and all the other people whose names were unpronounceable because they were mishmashes of letters, numbers, and symbols. Thank you all very much. Your words mean the world to us. They Isn't that do. true? They do. Yeah. All right. Well, that's all I got from my end. That's the show, bro. That is the show. How was it edited, Allison? <laughs> it's edited alphabetically by Rick Engdahl. For Robert Brokamp, I'm Allison Southwick. Stay foolish, everybody. Stay foolish, everybody.